Each year, more than 12 million people will hear the same three devastating words. You have cancer. I'm Lee Silverstein, a survivor of pediatric kidney cancer and stage four colon cancer. My amazing wife, Linda, has taught me that we have cancer because every one of us is affected by it in some way. Survivors, family, friends, and medical and support team members. And we all have a story worth telling. Welcome to We Have Cancer. Welcome to episode 124 of We Have Cancer. Thank you so much for joining me. Got a special guest this week, Casey Carmichael. Casey was the caregiver for her mother, who sadly passed away from stage four colorectal cancer. And Casey wanted to share not just her story, but some helpful advice and resources and tools for those who are our cancer caregivers. I don't know where I would be in the eight years that I've been dealing with my disease without my loving and wonderful wife, Linda. And we often say, and I know I often say, you know, unless you're a cancer patient, you don't know what it's like to be a patient. But that is also so true for caregivers. Unless you're a caregiver, you don't know what it's like to be a caregiver. And Casey kind of takes us into what her life was like and how uh, she helped support her mother, how she helped support herself, and the resources and tools that just eased a bit of the burden of being a cancer caregiver. We talked a lot about grief because, like I said, sadly, her mother did succumb to the disease and self-care. And I know that if you're a caregiver or if you share this episode with somebody who is a cancer caregiver, that this one's really going to have an impact on you. So join me now for my conversation with Casey Carmichael. Hi, Casey. Thank you for being on the show. I'm so thankful to our dear, dear mutual friend, Jeannie Moore, for putting us together. Yeah, it's great to meet you, Lee, and I'm so honored to be counted among all of the amazing people that have been on this podcast before, so just filled with gratitude. (laughs) As I am. (laughs) And I like to jump right in, and so that's what I'm going to do. And when I say the three-letter word, Mom, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Laughter. <laughs> Laughter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That always, that has not always been the case just because of, you know, the way that her story with cancer turned out and everything like that. But she was one of the warmest people you could possibly imagine. Loving, kind, affectionate, extremely caring. She was a, a elementary school teacher. She also had a bit of a sailor mouth, which is why I say laughter. <laughs> it's still, it's still no, one of no the, mom. you know, <laughs> it's one of the funniest things still to this day that just like never fails to make me laugh. It's just memories of her uh, mouthing off at somebody. But of course, you know, I think primarily the the main thing that I think about with her is just her immense warmth and just her ability to make people smile and laugh and how thoughtful she was. Was she able to use those wonderful traits to help her cope with her disease? Yeah, absolutely. I think that she, honestly, this was a bit of a surprise to everybody and my family as well as her. She was so selfless that I don't think she, 
had really paid attention to how much pain she was in. And I'm not at all saying that, you know, people um, fighting cancer, you know, should have seen it coming because so often it is such a shock. And with her, I think that she had really focused so much on everybody else in her life that, you know, taking the time to focus on herself was something that was a little bit out of her element. And I think that the other thing I noticed from her is that she used this as an example for me. Everything that she did, every action she took, every treatment she went through as you know, dire of a situation as her oncologist told her, my impression that I took away from it was that she did it for me just to show me how to fight back against something like this. How did she come to be diagnosed, Casey? So actually, it's a quite a long story. She actually had ulcerative colitis when she was a teenager in high school. She almost didn't graduate high school. She was very sick. She got down to as low as 80 pounds. It took them a little while to figure out what was going on with her. And obviously, that's one of the you know high risk factors for colorectal cancer. So she had been tested, I think that, let's see, back in 2015, towards the end of it, I started to see some differences in her demeanor. Um, she loved seeing me any opportunity that she got. We lived 10 minutes away from each other. We would meet up most mornings to either have a phone conversation or go for a walk with her dogs. And she started to forget about appointments that we'd made, or she started to kind of flake on things a little bit that she just wouldn't have before. And I started to notice that, you know, something seemed off. I wasn't quite sure cancer wasn't even on my radar is one of the things that I was thinking about. And at the same time, she started to complain of a little bit of abdominal pain. She had been to the doctor. They said, oh, it's diverticulitis. Why don't we try changing your diet? They did not do an ultrasound or any sort of scan at that point. And then really what led her to be diagnosed was that she went in for like a routine appointment where they drew blood and she had a blood clot. It, you looked at her arm and it just started to turn black and blue and it just was unusual. So then we took her back to the ER and that's how they actually discovered that there was a tumor. How many years ago was this? She was diagnosed um, April of 2016. How old was she? She was 67 years old. So, so you got the news and what was your thought process? You know, where did your mind go when you got the news of her diagnosis? I was completely shocked. And then afterward, thinking about it now, it's like, well, of course that was an option. Why didn't you think about cancer? You know, it just had never been something that was on my radar. I'd never, you know, dealt with it in anybody that I was close to before. It happened at an odd time of the day. I remember very vividly one of my close friends, Laura, I've been friends with the same girls, same group of girls since I was little. And my friend Laura had gone over to the house because we weren't expecting to stay in the hospital overnight and my mom wanted some of her things. So graciously, my, my friend Laura had gone to the house and gotten some clothes and some of her items and things like that. And we were all standing in the room talking together, having a good time. And then all of a sudden, the ER doctor said something like, we're admitting you, we've found a tumor and we're pretty sure that it's cancer. And we were all just stunned, silent. I didn't 
really know how to react other than I was very aware of my mom watching me. And I didn't want her to see me start to panic. I didn't want her to see me start crying or, you know, start thinking about all the possibilities that might mean. So I remember they wheeled away her gurney in the hospital to take her into the oncology ward and I was walking behind her bed purposely so she wouldn't see me crying. And my friend Laura silently held my hand and that was that. Was that. At what point did you feel that, all right, I am now officially in caregiver mode? Probably right away. I think the main the main thing I can remember is obviously at that point, we didn't know what kind of cancer it was. We didn't know the origin point. We didn't know how serious it was, what stage or anything like that. I just, that was the first time I'd ever heard the word cancer. And we, I think I was in the hospital with my mom for a couple of days. My brother, I talked to him and, you know, it was kind of the conversation. He lives in Idaho. So it was kind of the conversation of, do I fly out now? Do we wait to get more information and all this kind of stuff? So I started to notice that I was the source of information definitely at that point for um, anybody kind of looking after her. And then he ended up flying out probably the next day or something like that. And when they came in and told us that it was stage four, I think that's the first time I really felt the weight of what was happening. Certainly the cancer was more of a shock, but the reality of how severe that it was at that point, it really gave me perspective on how hard this was going to be. I didn't want to look up anything on the internet about any sort of numbers or statistics. I just refused to believe that any of that stuff could apply to her. Every story is different, and I still believe that now. but. Every cancer story is different. I've heard of amazing stories of people, you know, with stage four recovering completely. And, you know, I just didn't want to think about any other possibility. And I was also, again, very aware of her watching me receive that information. I wanted to be a source of strength for her, somebody that believed in her recovery no matter what, even when she didn't. At what point did you learn from the doctor that the prognosis was as grave as it was. Yeah, that's a, it was an interesting one. So there was a debate for a while about, you know, do we do surgery first or chemo first? We certainly, you know, my mom was totally game to, to fight this. We all were. So she, we kind of heard back and forth. It's this um, very difficult situation where in your mind, you really want this to be a simple thing to figure out, like, can all the doctors from all the different (laughs) departments get in one room and talk and then present a solution to us and not have, you know, one department come in and say that it's like, oh, this is the most grave thing ever, you should be panicking. And then the next department comes in and says something completely different. And then just really putting that on the family and the patient to kind of work that out and make a decision is very stressful, obviously. So I think when we'd gotten to a resolution where we felt like, okay, we know the source of this, we know we are going to do surgery first. She had an ileostomy put in. At that point, I think that the doctors and us, we felt really hopeful. We were like, okay, great. They gave us some time to figure this out. Really what had been happening too is that she had sepsis. She had an infection at the same time because a part of her colon had already ruptured. So I'm just, we were so happy they got that part of it under control. She started to feel better and things were going well for a little bit. Then she started chemo. 
the first time she felt pretty good. And then the next couple of times we noticed, you know, it was getting harder and harder for her to kind of bounce back after that. And then I remember one morning, uh, I actually moved into a, a house with her um, so that I could take care of her there and be with her. And I remember getting up, I had like a little buzzer thing. I mean, it's not meant to sound like it's sort of a, a diner or something, but I had a little alarm that she could, you know, push a button and make sure that I would wake up if, you know, it was in the middle of the night or whatever. And I remember I went into her room and she said, I want to go to the hospital. And it was this very flat tone. And the day before we'd actually had a nice night together. We watched a movie. She ate plenty. So I was just like, are you sure, you know? Is something else going on? What's hurting? And, you know, trying to understand that had something changed from yesterday. And she just kept saying, I want to go to the hospital. And at that point, we went back into the ER. And I remember her oncologist pulled me aside and her oncologist was crying. And I, I knew that that couldn't be good. <laughs> and she said, you know, I really, I tried to hold it together. You know, your mom, basically what she was telling me is that my mom, knew early on that it was not a great diagnosis. Obviously, you know, stage four is serious as, you know, anyway, but I think that her oncologist hadn't even recommended that she try chemo or anything like that. But she said, your mom wanted you to have this example of her fighting and she wanted to fight for you. That's why she did this. It's so hard for me to watch her be so sick. And she said, I really think you need to talk about, you know, time to stop treatment. That had to be just so incredibly hard. Absolutely. It, it was, I can't pinpoint which of the horrible days that we had was the most devastating, but that one's up there for sure. I just, I, I think we all kind of had hope. And I remember talking to my mom about it and being so... I, I had this feeling of like, why me? Why am I the one that has to deliver this kind of news to somebody that I love? It's not the doctor doing it. At the same time, in hindsight, I'm glad that it was me. It's somebody that she loved and trusted, and it was supposed to be me. I feel this, you know, huge sense of responsibility and not even that, just purpose with that. And I think that at the time, I just didn't understand. And I remember she said something to me like, I didn't think I was done yet. And that still bothers me. I don't think any of us wanted her to be done, obviously. And sure. she didn't want to be done either. And that sense of feeling robbed, I think that's when that started to kick in. And I think that's something that still hasn't really left. So she obviously relied on you for support, AC. Mm -hmm. Where did you go for support? I was extremely fortunate in a lot of ways. I had just, you know, I had a pretty good handle on my career. My employer was extremely supportive. My team at work was extremely supportive. I mean, they were checking in constantly, wanting to know what they could do. I, at the same time, I've had the same friends since I was little. They were all by my side anytime that I asked as well as my boyfriend and he, he and them were really like day to day there all the time, anything I needed, phone conversation, getting out for a quick dinner, they would come and sit with her. My mom's friends would come sit with her. My 
older brother as well as her twin brother both would fly or drive out anytime that I ever asked. Her brother Ray lives in Colorado and he, I remember he told me on the phone, it's 22 hours, you know, anytime that you are overwhelmed, anytime that you need anything, call me and I'll get in the car and I will be there in 22 hours. And he kept that promise multiple times. That's a good segue because, you know, you talked about your uncle and you talked about uh, your coworkers mm -hmm. and your coworkers said, let us know what we can do. Yeah. That's one of the challenges that caregivers and patients run into is people with the best of intentions, but not knowing how to communicate and kind of putting the burden on the patient or in your case, the caregiver yeah. to figure that all out. Tell me more about how you manage through that in your role as a caregiver for your mother. Yeah. So I think, first of all, I had to kind of shift my mindset a bit. When I would talk to people about my mom, I would get, you know, the let me know what we can do to help. Or I would get somebody else that was, you know, trying to show empathy, however well-intentioned it was, they would talk about you know, their, their relative that they lost to the same disease or um, saying, yeah, I've been in that position before. It was really hard. And I think initially at some of that, it's hard to not get a little bit cynical when you're going through such a hard time. But I had to kind of step back and say, you know what, no matter what these people are saying or doing, they all want to help. They all legitimately want to do something and they just don't know what to do or what to say. And you don't know what to do or what to say unless you've been in this position before. So I realized that I had to start getting specific <laughs> with things that I needed or wanted from people. And I had to stop being shy about asking for help. I am not somebody that likes to ask for help. You can ask anybody in my life. I'm not good about that. I just had to get over that first and foremost. And then some of the other ways that I started to manage through this a little bit is I found a resource called Lots of Helping Hands. That was a really helpful tool, actually, because I could set up a calendar where I could talk to my mom ahead of time and say, hey, are you up for a visit? I got so many people that, you know, wanted to visit her and come and bring her something or come and just have a conversation with her. But as you know, I mean, going through treatment is tiring and sometimes you're just not in the mood. And that's hard to explain to people that have never been in this position before too. So this allowed us to be really proactive about it. You can go on there and create a calendar of times that you're open to having a visitor. You can create a calendar for any doctor's appointments if you've got a full-time job and you're not able to be there every time. People can actually go and sign up to get updates about your loved one. They can sign up to take care of one of the rides. They can sign up to bring you some meals. Anything that you put on there is it's really easy to kind of send that link out as like, hey, that's so great that, you know, you really want to help us. I've set up this site with a bunch of things that we need. So, you know, it kind of leaves it in their court to peruse that and see what they can do. And how, I hate to put this in, in analytical terms, yeah. but what was, it, what was the success rate of, <laughs> you know, people saying, hey, I'd love to help and those who actually clicked and signed up to do something? It was high. I, I don't want to say I was surprised because my mom had a lot of really, really wonderful friends in her life former students and their families that would sign up. People, you know, she had them as students when they were seven years old and these kids were now in their 20s and they wanted to do something for her. 
they still thought about her. That's how influential she was. So it's not like I was shocked that people wanted to help. But I think that giving them something to do or somewhere to put their, you know, energy, I think it was actually really helpful for everybody. They got to feel good about, you know, doing something. They got to spend time with her. Most often we got a lot of the people signing up for visits because they just wanted to see her. A lot of the time too, that would allow us to, um, you know, they would bring over some meals when you're going through chemo. Um, it was really hard to get my mom to eat. Um, a lot of my time was spent trying to get her to eat anything. And she would have really specific cravings for things. Like I remember one time she asked me for a, I want the um, seafood salad from Knob Hill. <laughs> I went, oh man, like seafood salad from Knob Hill, like at a deli is probably the worst thing I could imagine, like getting you while you're doing chemo, but I don't have the time to get out and get the things to make it from scratch. And somebody did that for us. So it makes my craving for macaroni and cheese sound you know, simple by comparison. (laughs) There'd be random things like chicken pot pie or, you know, there's just like, she and I just had such a bond over comfort food. I mean, she grew up with the very um, Texas based Southern diet, chicken fried steak and, you know, gravy kind of thing. And, you know, when you're trying to kind of get through chemo and, you know, have them, you know, make sure that things are nutritious. But at at some point you're like, whatever, whatever you'll eat, I'll give you. (laughs) so that really helped because we could tell people ahead of time what she really felt like and people would go to the effort and do it for us from scratch and it was just wonderful be sure to stick around to the end of this episode to learn how you can get your rear in gear one of the things you shared with me really resonated with me Casey because my wife is my caregiver and and we talk and I encourage her to make sure she doesn't skip meals, make sure she goes to the gym mm-hmm. because you have to be in good shape for lack of a better phrase to be able to care for somebody else. You got to take care of yourself to be able to care for others. And you shared some helpful tips for other caregivers to just to think about in terms of self-care yeah, so that you're better able to support your loved one. What are some of those things that you recommend people take a close look at? Yeah, you know, getting outside was a huge one for me. I think it's an instant mood lifter, regardless of, you know, how tough the day has been, or sometimes it hasn't, you know, you've had a good day. But I think getting into that routine for yourself as much as you can is really helpful. For me, that meant taking a walk around the neighborhood. If she was napping, and it seemed like kind of a low risk situation where I could get out and do a 20 minute walk or something like that. I would do that. I'd pick a a podcast or um, pull up an album I wanted to listen to or call somebody and make that a really positive thing for myself. So that was a huge one. Uh, You can do that from the hospital as well. Like I would go walk around the grounds or get outside in the garden just to get outside and get some vitamin D I think was incredibly helpful. I think too, thinking about your own diet and nutrition, one thing that I wish I had done a little bit more of was paying attention to that. I wasn't shy about asking for things for my mom, but I wasn't thinking about myself. And I could have said, hey, you know, I'm spending all my energy, you know, here taking care of my mom as I want to be. And I was so happy to be doing. But 
I am not thinking about or planning my own meals out. So um, I ended up <laughs> succumbing to DoorDash and <laughs> ordering a lot of things <laughs> that are just, it's scary how quick you can get a piece of cheesecake delivered. I'll just put it that way. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, my big thing in hindsight was I wish I paid more attention to my own um, health and nutrition, but luckily, luckily, I did stay healthy. I never, I didn't get a cold. I didn't get a cough. I got nothing, you know, the whole time I was taking care of her miraculously. Um, so I just got lucky in, in some regard, but I'd also, you know, to the point of DoorDash, I know I kind of made a joke about it just now, but if there's so much technology out there nowadays, and there's all of these delivery services that are popping up. So like take advantage of that stuff while you can, or if, if you have the means to, you know, it's definitely a convenience fee to get your groceries delivered, but that was just like a huge weight lifted off where I didn't have to figure out like, okay, well, when's a good time I can go out for an hour and then have to talk to all these strangers and make small talk. I just despised that when you're going through something so hard. The last thing I wanted to do is have kind of frivolous conversations at the grocery store. So just anything that you can do to take any sort of stress or errands off of yourself, I think is incredibly helpful too. Helpful advice. And I appreciate you sharing that. So when did your mother pass? Uh, she passed exactly four months after she was diagnosed. So it was September 1st, 2016. Wow. That was quick. Yeah. It didn't, um, in hindsight, it was quick. It didn't feel quick. Definitely. Um, being there day to day. I think a lot of the each day had its own challenges, right? And I'm so lucky that there were many in there that were really enjoyable. And, you know, I'm so glad that we have those memories together and that we spent the time that we did at the end. That That is one thing about cancer. I'll, I'll never be thankful that she got it or anything like that. But it is unique in that I feel like you get the time to deal with what's coming with your loved one. If something happens as a surprise, you don't always get that kind of change in mindset where you can kind of both acknowledge, you know, the relationship that you've had, clear any last, you know, unfinished, unfinished business or conversations and really just focus on enjoying each other's company while you have it. So unfortunately you transitioned from caregiver to dealing with grief. Yeah. What got you through that? Or what I guess the better way to say that is what gets you? through that because I don't know that grief ever ends, but yeah. you know, what, what has helped you get through and move forward day to day? So first of all, you know, knowing, knowing her passing was coming, I could kind of get ahead of it. Obviously that's not something you can plan for and it just feels horrible to try to plan for it. But one thing that I'm really grateful that I was able to do is that I was there when she passed and I had talked to hospice about it. And I was so anxious about, you know, what if I step out of the room and then she's gone or so they told me something and I'm not, I'm a very literal uh, person by nature, but this is the first time that I had sort of acknowledged that there was some, some sort of spiritual quality to this as well as that. Um, I remember our chaplain from um, hospice had told me, you'll be there if she wants you to be there. Um, you have control 
when you're the person that's dying, you have control of when that happens. And some people that are in a protective role of the person that wants to be there with them want to spare them from that. And some people really don't want to be alone and they want to make sure that you're there. And that's something that really put that into perspective for me and allowed me to kind of be okay either way, knowing that that was kind of whatever she wanted was going to happen. I'm glad that I was there and I had talked to my two best friends and my boyfriend ahead of time. And I said, you know, I don't want to come back to the house alone. Can you guys be there when this, you know, when she passes? And they said, absolutely. So it was roughly three in the morning. Um, Weirdly, I remember looking down at the time and it was the exact time that I was born. It was a really unusual full circle moment. Yeah. I called all three of them. All three of them picked up right away and they drove over and they were waiting for me at my house when I got home. And it was, it ended up being actually kind of a nice day, which I'm so shocked by still. I remember, you know, we all sat on the couch and, and cried together and my boyfriend had lost a parent as had my, one of my best friends. And I remember we kind of had this joke about, you know, welcome to the side of the couch, which is like, I think my, our sense of humor, you know, I certainly darkened by that point. So I think that that has been something for sure that has gotten me through a lot of tough times. And we spent that day, just all of my friends came over and we had a barbecue and we all just talked about her and we toasted her memory. I didn't, after it happened initially, I didn't really cry a lot for the next few days. I think there was this shock of what do I do now? And then, you know, planning a a service and all of that kind of stuff kicked in. And I still had all these like, you know, very task oriented things to do. It was when all of that was over that I really felt the weight of the loss. When people stop sending flowers, when people stop reaching out, that's when you really feel like, oh my gosh, my life is completely different than it was just a week ago. And part of that, there was certainly some some element of relief because it's not like I wanted my, my mom to be stuck here suffering. But at the same time, I realized that all of those morning phone calls every day weren't happening, happening anymore. We had a tradition every Sunday, I would bring her flowers and we would go to lunch. None of that was going to happen anymore. So it just really hit me at that point that uh, she was gone and my life was never going to be the same again. So that's when I really started to feel the weight of, you know, what the past four months had been. And certainly, you know, I wasn't the one battling a disease, so I can only say so much here, but it was really painful. And there's a lot of things that I witnessed and just spending so many hours in a you know, oncology ward of a hospital, just just so much pain left and right and in a place like that and watching her suffer so much and even watching her pass, honestly, was something that I kind of had to grapple with. And I ended up having some symptoms of PTSD and, you know, I would be at the grocery store in the checkout line. And I remember one time there was a beep that happened that reminded me of one of the machines in her hospital room. And it just sent me into this like weird panic. And I just noticed like, I don't think this is okay. (laughs) So I ended up seeking therapy for that. And um, really what it came down to is some ways to ground myself in, in the right now, not reliving things that are painful and really just thinking about and framing up memories differently and kind of letting them pass by as something that 
I don't have to acknowledge. Certainly painful memories and images will pop into my head when I don't want them to be there. But the more that I kind of give in and agonize over it, the more that they'll show up. I also actually scheduled time to grieve, just trying to keep myself together and be able to do my job and go to work and have a life and kind of try to find whatever this new normal was going to be. Uh, I really struggled with that for a long time. And I think just setting aside time once a week to sit there and read her journals and look through, she made me this amazing baby book. She wrote me letters on my birthdays when I was little and just sit there and read those and cry and feel bad. For some reason, just setting aside time to make sure that I did that actually made me feel better in a weird way. That's incredibly powerful. And I think at the same time, helpful to folks who may be listening. I hope so, for sure. You know, we experience all kinds of emotions in life. And I think too often in our society, we we label emotions as good or bad. Emotions are emotions. And setting aside time to experience and acknowledge the emotions of what's happened, how could that not be healthy? Right. My opinion. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's just one of those things. Like I always, I remember even as a kid, I I had you know aunts, uh, aunts and uncles and grandparents that I didn't see very often. They passed, and this was just the first, the first and closest person to me. Like going from zero to a hundred in terms of the grief scale, it just was a shock. And I had never thought about how I was going to deal with this, but definitely my friends and family have been a huge support to me as well. And they allow me to just talk about some of the stuff that, you know, you feel like you're carrying around this big bag of stuff that nobody wants, right? I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to be grieving and sad and crying all the time, but I can't really, I don't really feel comfortable dumping that on somebody else either, or feeling like I'm dumping it on somebody else. And to their credit, a lot of them just said, it's okay. You know, this hasn't been very long. Even now they say that to me, if I have a, I definitely still have bad days here and there. And they'll tell me like, it really hasn't been that long since you lost your mom. This is completely normal. It's okay. You know, tell me things as much as you want. And I just really feel for people that may not have that. And it just, I don't know how one gets through that without a really strong support system. And, you know, I think that that's so many, I think that's so much of the reason why I was able to overcome a lot of that. You've shared a really powerful story and I consider it an honor to, you know, help you share that. But when we have emotional conversations, there's like no easy, comfortable way to like bring it to a close. <laughs> but people wanted to reach out to you, Casey, maybe for a tip or yeah. for some advice or guidance. Where could they find you online? Yeah, absolutely. I'm on Facebook, Instagram. I'm happy to send over an email address as well. I am in the um, Blue Hope Nation group on Facebook. If um, you're familiar with the Colorectal Cancer Alliance, of course, I've signed up as a buddy for that. So if there's anybody that you know really needs help, or if there's anything that I can do to support someone that might have been in my position, I'm absolutely 100% willing to do that. Um, That's great. If there's time, there's also, there's something that I can read that one of my mom's former students had sent me. And I think that's, 
I oh, can't, please do. I can't imagine a better way to close it out, though. I don't think I've ever been able to read this without crying. So wish me luck. <laughs> you won't be the first. Yours truly has even shed some tears on this show. So please share it with us. Sure. Absolutely. So this was something that was sent to me by one of my mom's former students. She taught anywhere from second to fourth grade, and she worked so hard to make sure that her classroom was just special for all the kids every day. She's not one of those teachers that you you know will reuse a lesson plan over and over. She decided to turn her room into a rainforest when she was teaching the kids about it, and she transformed the classroom over the weekend and just came up with all these amazing things. And this former student of hers reached out, and she's now in college. So she had gone to look up my mom, hoping to find her on Facebook and connect with her and um, catch up with her. And she told me that her heart dropped when the first thing that she saw was her obituary. So this note that she sent me is something I just received last year, which is just incredible if you think about the amount of time that's passed since they saw each other. So she says, I'm sure you've heard this a thousand times already from former students, but let me add my name to the list. Your mother was the most absolute wonderful teacher I've ever had. I can't even begin to tell you how many wonderful memories I have from her class. So many instances of Mrs. Carmichael going above and beyond for us. She was so kind, loving, and she truly cared about us. Truly an exceptional teacher and an exceptional person. I'm so, so, so sorry for your loss. Even though I was only seven or eight, she said one thing that stuck with me. We were learning about comets, including Haley's Comet. Mrs. Carmichael said something along the lines of... The next Haley's Comet isn't coming for a long time, 2061. By then, I'll be long gone, so when you look at it, I want you to think of me just for a second. She said it in a lighthearted and loving way, but it stuck with me forever, and if I'm around in 2061, I promise I'll think of my favorite teacher, Mrs. Carmichael. I'll never forget how kind and wonderful your mom was to me and all of her students. We all truly loved her. How beautiful. And with that, I'm gonna say, Casey, thank you so much for sharing uh, wonderful you know, suggestions and tips as a caregiver, but really more importantly, letting us have a little peek into how amazing your mother was and uh, the role she played in your life. Thank you for sharing that with all of us. Thank you, Lee. This was, this was um, amazing and thank you for letting me tell her story. Be well. Colon Cancer Coalition is sponsoring several exciting events across the country, all fun ways that you can support the Colon Cancer Coalition, starting with the Get Your Rear in Gear 5K Run, Walk, and Kids One Mile Fun Run. They are taking place at the following dates and cities, beginning this coming Sunday, May 26th in Wichita, Kansas, at the Farm and Art Market Plaza. Saturday, June 1st in Little Rock at Burns Park and Saturday, June 22nd for our friends in Rochester, Minnesota at Soldiers Field. Two other exciting events taking place on Saturday, June 8th in Allentown, Pennsylvania is the Tour de Tush bike ride at taking place at Grange Park. You have your choice of 10, 30 or 60 mile bike rides. And on Friday, June 14th in Bloomingdale, Illinois is the Caboose Cup Golf Tournament with the proceeds benefiting the Colon Cancer Coalition that is taking place at the Bloomingdale Golf Club. For information on these and all other events, check out the Colon Cancer Coalition's website at coloncancercoalition.org. 
Thank you for listening to We Have Cancer, and thank you to our sponsor, the Colon Cancer Coalition, for your support. You can subscribe to We Have Cancer by visiting Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, or Spotify. And you can find us on social media by visiting our Facebook page at We Have Cancer Show and at We Have Cancer Pod on both Instagram and Twitter. We Have Cancer is a proud supporter of Genie's Blue Angels, providing financial support to those affected by colorectal cancer.